9.15 p.m. November 15, 2013, Valley Center, Kansas. A 911 call comes into Sedgwick County Emergency Communications from the quiet Wichita, Kansas suburb of Valley Center. Yeah, I just got home and my parents are both in the car. I think they're like both passed out. The caller is the 16-year-old son of Melissa and Roger Blummel. He reports that he parked behind his parents' pickup truck in the driveway of their home. He notices that the driver's side door is open slightly. My dad keeps on, like, coughing, and my mom, her head will, like, bubble up and down. I thought it was a joke at first, and then, like... They seriously haven't moved for like 30 minutes. I was like yelling at them and like trying to wake them up. And the dispatcher asks if they are reacting at all. No, nothing at all. Are they breathing? Uh, yeah. My dad keeps on like coughing. The dispatcher reassures the teen that help is on the way and asks him to lay his parents flat on the ground. Oh my God. I just opened up the car and there's blood everywhere. Hi listeners. Welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murders. Host may hurt listeners' feelings, give unsolicited advice, and be judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA. And no, I do not currently reside in any of our prisons. Also, I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or psychology. I'm just a true crime fan who researches murders and tries to be accurate, so I can share what interests me with you. Opinions on this podcast are not professional ones. Listeners, I noticed that I've done several cold cases on the podcast, and I know that some people, including my older daughter, don't really like unsolved cases. They want answers. Personally, I find cold cases very interesting, probably because that leaves me lots of room for wild speculation. But this week's episode is not a cold case. It's totally solved. And even better, justice has been served. 
I didn't find a book or a podcast about the case, but there is an Oxygen TV episode of Snapped about it. I didn't see the whole episode out there uh, for free to watch, but there are trailers and other stuff at uh, www.oxygen.com. You can listen to the actual audio from the 911 call out there. Since we've moved to the country, I haven't been able to get the Oxygen channel, but I highly recommend it to true crime fans, especially the excellent Snapped. There also are videos online from Wichita TV stations, KSN, and KAKE. The main source I used for this podcast is the Wichita Eagle newspaper. Their crime reporters do a very good job. Shoutouts to Tim Potter and Amy Liker. I think it's Liker, L-E-I-K-E-R. I put the links for all of this in the show notes. Okay, enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about murder. <laughs> Melissa Jane Schoenaker. That name is S-C-H-O-E-N-E-C-K-E-R. So... Could be Schoenacher or Schoenacher, not sure. Good German name. Is born January 4th, 1960. Roger Joseph Blummel. That's B-L-U-M-L. Might, might be Blumel. I'll probably keep saying Blummel. Is born the 17th of January, 1965. They're both from large Catholic families and grow up in the Wichita, Kansas area. In 2013, they are 53 and 48 years old, respectively, and have been married over 20 years. They have two adopted sons, 18 and 16. The family home is a comfortable rural place in the Wichita suburb of Valley Center. Melissa works as vice president at a local bank, Chisholm Trail State Bank, which has offices in Park City and Bel Air, Kansas. Listeners, Wichita is the biggest city in Kansas. It's located in Sedgwick County. The population of the whole metropolitan area is about 650,000. It's home to Wichita State University, which has, at least in my opinion, one of the best team names ever. Go Shockers! It's in the south-central part of Kansas, maybe three hours' drive from Kansas City. If you head south from Wichita, um, it's probably another three hours to Oklahoma City. I actually drive this a lot, headed down to Texas. Like a lot of places in Kansas, Wichita started out as a cow town. It was the northern end of the famous Chisholm Trail, a major place that cowboys drove herds up from Texas to be put onto rail cars. So a very rowdy place like Dodge City and Abilene. Wyatt Earp was once on the Wichita police force with his brother James. 
he actually got fired there for beating up a guy who was running against his boss for town marshal. In the early 1900s, Wichita grew some from its location near the huge El Dorado oil field. But the real story of Wichita's growth is the story of its airplane industry. By 1929, Wichita is known as the aeronautical capital of the world. It will be home to many aircraft manufacturers, including Cessna, Beechcraft, Learjets, and of course Boeing. McConnell Air Force Base is near Wichita. Over the years, the city's fortunes rise and fall, along with the aircraft industry. But that's not the only industry in town. Wichita is also where these famous companies got started. The Mentholatum Company and the Coleman Company, the Camping Stuff Company. And my personal favorite, Wichita is home to the first Pizza Hut. Like most big cities, the high crime areas of Wichita are downtown, but Wichita reminds me a lot of Kansas City. It's not like St. Louis and Chicago and Detroit, which have just miles and miles of neighborhoods that look like war zones. There are bad neighborhoods, and Wichita's had a history of some pretty bad gang violence, but even in the inner city, like in Kansas City, there are lots of parks and areas that are more gentrified. And you don't have to drive far anywhere in any direction to be in some nice open areas. And there's been a good effort to capitalize on the city's history to create a thriving downtown area. The upper middle class neighborhoods, the suburbs spread out all around the city. And that's where Melissa and Roger chose to raise their boys, in Valley Center, north of Wichita. Childless for a number of years, the Blummels adopt two young brothers in the early 90s. The boys are about five and six when this takes place. Melissa and Roger throw themselves into parenthood. Both boys are very athletic and their parents are their biggest supporters. A friend tells a story of Melissa once personally making more than 50 pounds. Oh, sorry, listeners, I forgot to look up the kilograms. Um, let's see, kilos are smaller than pounds? I can't remember. Anyway, 50 pounds of potato salad is really a lot. She made that for an athletic booster barbecue. Quote, that was just like Melissa. They were awesome parents who never missed a sporting event, unquote, one of her friends said. Both boys participate in wrestling and football at Valley Center High School. The older boy was so good, he came in second in the Kansas State Wrestling Tournament. He has just graduated and no longer lives at home. The younger Blummel's son is still in school, a junior, year 11, at Valley Center High. He is the one who makes the 911 call. The Blummel home is a very nice place. If you know the area, the address is 5932 East 109th Street North near Woodlawn. 
It's a pleasant looking yellow house with a big deck and a two car garage. The property is 16 acres with a pond and lots of woods. Oh, I sorry, I didn't look up acres either. Anyway, it's a it's a nice sized property. It looks like a wonderful place to raise two boys, not a place where anyone would expect a double shooting. It doesn't take long for emergency services to arrive at the Blummel House. Melissa and Roger are rushed to a nearby hospital. Both victims have been shot in the head. Melissa dies of her wounds the next day. Roger clings to life in a coma. Investigators question the family and friends of the Blummels, trying to get a timeline of events and some idea of a possible motive. It appears that the Blummels are ambushed as they pull into their driveway and start to get out of their pickup. They are both shot in the head and left to die. Melissa's purse is missing, as well as Roger's keys and cell phone. There are no obvious signs that the house has been burglarized, like ransacking or valuables missing from the home, at least as far as they can tell. Extensive searches of the rural area around the home and at nearby North Chisholm Park near Kansas Highway 96 and Woodlawn yield some evidence in the crime, cartridge casings and guns, a purse, and... Quoting from the court filing, what appears to be a long-sleeved shirt slash garment. The evidence is given to the Sedgwick County Regional Forensic Science Center for forensic DNA analysis. The court filing also says that the center advised the prosecutors that, quote, due to the environment, in which the items were found and the nature of the items themselves, there may be difficulties obtaining a sufficient quantity of biological material for DNA analysis from these items. As such, the entire swabs collected will likely have to be consumed to provide the best opportunity for such analysis to produce comparable results, unquote. Okay, obligatory, not a DNA expert, but my understanding is that in the past, even as recently as 2013, DNA testing often required larger samples than today. So there was sometimes a risk that DNA evidence might be all used up in the testing. Thus, investigators had to weigh the value of testing right now in favor of testing later when advances might be made that would provide better results. Over the past few years, as we all know, there have been huge advances in DNA technology. Some of those breakthroughs include that analysts can get information more easily and from much smaller samples. And the Blumble murders, DNA will be a bit of a legal issue, but as it turns out, not a huge one. The Blummel family grieves and uh, Melissa's family, the Schoenickers, and they maintain a vigil at Roger's side. 
and they wait to find out what happened at the Blummel home on Friday night, November 15, 2013. They won't have to wait very long. On November 20th, 2013, a sheriff's official announces the arrest of four people. They are all charged with first-degree murder in the death of Melissa Blummel. The four arrested are Keisha Schaberg, that's S-C-H-A-B-E-R-G, age 35, two 18-year-old Park City men, Park City's another suburb of Wichita. Their names are Andrew Ellington and Braden Smith and Anthony Blummel. Sadly, yes, the 18-year-old son of Melissa and Roger. I wasn't able to find a whole lot about Keisha Sheberg's early life. Most of the information I have about her personal life comes from a woman named Sean Hamilton, who is a romantic partner of Keisha's and Keisha's former stepchildren. They are all very forthcoming to the media. Keisha is born July 23, 1978, in Pasadena, California. Somehow, she ends up in Missouri for a while with her two young sons. I couldn't find anything about a biological father or fathers of the boys, apparently not in the picture at all. Sean relates that in the early 90s, Keisha realizes that she can't take care of the boys, so she puts them up for adoption. Yeah, listeners, I think that's probably the story Keisha tells. In light of everything that happens, my guess is that the State Children's Services Department intervenes. At any rate, the boys are adopted by Melissa and Roger Blummel. In the meantime, Keisha goes to medical school and becomes a pediatrician. No, 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 that's not at all what she does. Somehow, she does get married to a man named Robert Swank, and she helps raise his children, and about 2006 has another child, um, a daughter, presumably the child of Robert Swank. I'm not totally sure about the order of all of this. When this marriage comes to an end, um, 2011 or 2012, I think, Keisha moves back to California with her daughter and moves in with Sean Hamilton in San Diego. Robert Swank dies in the summer of 2013. Sean, in the articles, she sounds like a really nice, fairly responsible person, uh, supports Keisha and her daughter, while, according to Sean, Keisha takes care of the house and contributes to the household via her welfare benefits. Sometime, 2011 or 2012 maybe, 
Keisha makes contact via Facebook with her biological sons. Anthony, the older boy, really wants a relationship with his birth mother, while his younger brother is much less enthusiastic. Listeners, I have two adopted daughters. The oldest we adopted in Kansas when she was just a few days old, probably 10 years before the Blummels adopted Keisha's two boys. So things may have changed, but at least in 1982, Kansas had a very open adoption process. We knew the identities of both of our daughter's biological parents from day one. So I'm guessing the Blummels know about Keisha. And they've probably kept track of her over the years. They may even have been in contact with her. I'm not sure. And they may have told the children about her. The boys are a little older when they're adopted, so I'm sure they remember something about their time with their biological mother. My feeling is that Melissa and Roger would not have been totally opposed to the boys communicating with her. I'm sure, though, that they urge the boys to be careful. After all, they know the circumstances of the adoption. But all this is is hard to say. I'm really just guessing from my own experience. Anyway, by 2013, Keisha has established some sort of relationship with the Blummel boys. The problem is that Anthony is beginning to have some real problems at home. He does graduate from high school and talks about going into the Air Force, However, he's not running with the best crowd, and he's chafing under the expectations the Blummels have for their 18-year-old son, who's just graduated from high school. Anthony whines to his biological mother about how strict they are and how they like his brother more than him. Being the immature, self-centered twit, that she is, Keisha agrees with him. She does her own whining about how terrible Melissa and Roger are to him and how they've turned the younger son against her. Listeners, Anthony's parents do have expectations, perfectly normal ones, like you're 18, go to college or join the military or get a job, move toward adulthood in a positive way. The restrictions he's upset about are, hey, don't do drugs and then just lie around the house being a lazy bum. In June 2013, just days after his graduation, Anthony decides his great ambition is to sell drugs. He gets in a fight and gets arrested for misdemeanor assault. His parents help him out. They're not totally ready to cut him loose, but it won't be long before they kick him out of the house because he's still doing drugs and tell him 
to support himself. Anthony and Keisha find this unacceptable. Quote, they have money. They should let Anthony have some money. And, unquote, unspoken, but do whatever he wants. He couch serves for a few weeks, but that gets old. And then, with Keisha's encouragement, of course, he goes to California to visit her and his half-sister. He brings a friend, Braden Smith, with him. Smith is a classmate of Anthony's who got into drugs and trouble and dropped out of high school to begin a career as a pothead. But he does have a car that can get them as far as California. Sean Hamilton allows them to stay at the apartment she shares with Keisha and her seven-year-old daughter with the stipulation that they get jobs, and she offers to help them do that. They have no intention of doing that, and Keisha has no intention of making them do that. Sean isn't one to put up with this for long. As she tells it, Keisha and Anthony and Braden spend all day smoking pot, even when Keisha's daughter is home. Quote, Keisha started getting high with them all day and every day. Unquote. While Sean is working two jobs to support everybody, the only sign of initiative from Anthony and Braden is to try to break into the drug selling business. Sean tells them, quote, this is dangerous. I cannot have this in my home. You have to take this elsewhere, unquote. Keisha accuses her of being jealous of her son. Listeners, I know I said Sean sounds very nice. Maybe a little too nice. In the newspaper articles, even after the arrest, she's still defending Keisha and puts the blame on Anthony, saying it was all his influence. No, Sean, Keisha's a 35-year-old woman who should know better. And she probably does, but she's too lazy to do anything about it. There's nothing in this woman worth defending. Sean does kick them out, though. Good for her. On October 30th, Keisha Anthony, Keisha's seven-year-old daughter, who, by the way, is in school at this time of year, and Braden Smith all pile into Braden's car, a little silver Nissan Altima, and head to Kansas. According to Sean, Keisha's plan was to get a job cleaning homes in Wichita that would allow her to pay for a two-bedroom apartment for her and her daughter. Oh, sure, that was the plan. That's not what happens at all. When they get back to Wichita, they move into a motel in South Wichita. If you know Wichita, it's the Value Place Motel at 4665 South Broadway. A really bad neighborhood. Certainly no place for a seven-year-old. One night, 
Anthony says, quote, if we kill my parents, we can get will money, unquote. And thus a plot is hatched, not a brilliant plot, but a ruthless one. According to testimony, the plan goes something like this. Anthony sets the date for the murders to Friday, November 15th, 2013, because his little brother will be out of the house at a wrestling meet. Anthony will invite his parents to dinner to talk and meet his little sister. What a scumbag. In the meantime, Braden will drive Keisha to the Blummel house to wait for the couple to return home. In the meantime, they can burglarize the house and steal a stash of cash that Anthony knows about, plus anything else they want to steal. He'll let them know when Roger and Melissa are close, and they can hide near the driveway and surprise the couple before they can get out of their truck. Braden will hold the gun on Roger while Keisha shoots Melissa, Melissa and then shoots Roger. Braden Smith does get two twenty-five caliber pistols to use, but he gets cold feet about the murders. And so he calls the police to report what's going on, like a normal human being would, right? Of course not. Of course that's not what he does. He gets a friend, Andrew Ellington, to take his place as the driver for $1,000. Ellington is a classmate of Anthony's, a fellow graduate who was on the golf team at school, and someone with very bad taste in Friends. Smith assures Keisha and Anthony that, quote, Drew is a good person. He won't run his mouth, unquote. What a great way to judge whether somebody's a good person or not. And so, on that tragic Friday, good plan or bad plan, these soulless creatures carry the plan out and all four are arrested for it within days. The prosecutor is Mark Bennett. He's the district attorney for Sedgwick County, Kansas. We've talked about Kansas prosecutors before. Usually they're called county attorneys and they're elected officials. Because of this, sometimes politics rears its ugly head in murder trials. That's not the case here. Bennett is in a lot of news stories, and from what I can see, he seems like a stand-up guy. He certainly does a very good job in this case. The defendants all plead guilty. They have bonds of a million dollars each. As far as I can tell, nobody ever bonds any of them out, and 
I don't think I'd risk losing my house for one of these chuckleheads either. Things get even worse for them when Roger succumbs to his wounds and dies on December 21st, 2013, a few weeks after his wife's murder. In his obituary, his only listed survivor is his younger son, who has been taken in by family. The community rallies around the 16-year-old. A friend tells reporters, now he has a bunch of moms. There's not one of us that are not going to look out after him. He's a sweet kid, and he's been through way too much. A fund is set up to raise money for the Blummel family's needs in the short term. On January 3rd, 2014, Bennett files capital murder charges for all four defendants. In order for a case to be eligible for the death penalty, Kansas law requires intentional and premeditated killing of more than one person as a part of the same act or transaction. The four defendants all appear in court to hear the amended charges. It's interesting to compare what Andrew and Braden look like when they're arrested and what they look like in court. Clearly, their attorneys have advised them to try to look as clean cut as possible. And they really do just look like two young college kids. Anthony, not so much, although his scraggly pothead beard is gone. To me, Keisha looks just like the low-life creep she is, but really, she probably doesn't look much different from a lot of women you run into on the street or at Walmart. All their bonds are double to $2 million. There are a couple of half-hearted attempts at defense. Anthony files a motion to suppress his statement to detectives, saying he was, quote, not in complete control of his faculties, unquote, when he was questioned. In other words, high as a kite. The judge promises a ruling and even indicates there might be some merit to the claim. There's another motion from the defense concerning the DNA testing. I would say the defendants have got pretty good lawyers, and they really know their way around death penalty cases in Kansas. It's almost too bad they have such clearly guilty clients. One of the reasons they cite for the motion is that the DNA expert cautioned that testing might destroy the evidence samples. Remember, we talked about that. Another reason is that the DNA testing lab is actually a private lab that is funded by Sedgwick County. So there could be a conflict of interest. That's actually not an uncommon situation. Many municipal and county and even state law enforcement agencies really don't have adequate facilities to handle all the DNA they need to process. So they often will contract out with a private company to do the testing. The defense requests that the testing be video videotaped. Now to me, not the DNA or legal expert, that sounds reasonable. In fact, I'm a little surprised it isn't standard procedure 
to have forensic testing taped. It seems like it could forestall a lot of legal issues and questions about evidence testing. But apparently, it's not that simple. The prosecution argues that it will delay the testing. It will make the testing too expensive. It might contaminate the lab, and so forth and so on. Now, to me, the defense makes the better arguments, pointing out that taping is standard procedure in many forensic labs, for example, Chicago's. And they have a DNA expert testify that she is often called in to monitor and videotape DNA testing in high-profile cases. It takes a couple of weeks for the judge to deny the motion for the videotaping, but he indicates he is inclined to rule in favor of having an outside expert monitor the procedures. However, all this is moot soon because Braden Smith, our guy with cold feet, reaches a plea deal with the DA. Now, I typically grind my teeth when I hear plea deal because it usually means some murderer is going to get a lighter sentence than they deserve. But in this case, I'm not upset at all over it. We don't really know what kind of case the DA has. The DNA testing hasn't been done yet, and it sounded like it might not be as promising as they hoped. So I'm guessing the case he's got is mostly circumstantial. And it may be a strong circumstantial case. They've got a good motive and witnesses, and I would think cell phone records. But there may not be a strong case as far as physical evidence goes. So if all four would keep their mouths shut, the idea that it could have been a burglar gone wrong might be reasonable doubt for some jurors, especially if there's not any real stunning um, physical evidence the DA can produce. And I'm not that upset because Braid Smith's deal is not all that great. Uh, he pleads guilty to second-degree murder, testifies against all three other defendants, and his sentence will be 24 and a half years in prison. When this deal is announced in the preliminary hearing for all four of the defendants, Braden has to testify about his part in the plot and about what the participants told him about what happened the night of the murders. The other three defendants are sitting right there in the courtroom when he does this. I'm guessing you could hear a pin drop while he's talking. Braden's testimony is chilling and extremely convincing. This is what the Wichita Eagle reports. When the Blummels returned home, she and Ellington, that's um, 
that's Keisha that he's talking about, walked out from the side of the house and approached the pickup. Melissa Blummel began to open the passenger door and said, Oh my gosh, Keisha! Shaberg blocked the door from opening farther and shot Melissa Blummel once in the head, Smith said. Roger Blummel's attention was completely on his wife as Shaberg walked around the front of the vehicle to the driver's side. She opened the driver's door, pointed the gun, and pulled the trigger. But it didn't fire. Quote, it clicked like three times before it actually fired, unquote, Smith said, relaying what he said was Shaberg's account of events. When it finally fired, Roger Blummel was shot once in the head. Listeners, it's really hard to think about. Just imagine poor Melissa and especially Roger. Immediately after the shooting, Shaberg and Ellington drove to where Smith was partying with a group of friends. Ellington called him from the vehicle, saying Shaberg was having an anxiety attack. Smith said he rolled a marijuana joint, what a genius, and took it out to the car, where the three of them smoked together. Was there any discussion about what just happened, the DA asked. No, Smith said, but Keisha did say, quote, Drew did good. Drew was great, unquote. When Smith looked at him, Ellington just smiled. Ugh. The marijuana wasn't calming Shaberg enough, he said. She asked for a dab, a more intense form of marijuana extracted from the plant's flower. They went inside to smoke that. I'm guessing where these other friends are. And she finally began to calm down. The next day, Smith testified, Anthony Blummel called him and told him he had a half pound of marijuana that he'd purchased using cash taken from the Blummel house. He'd paid $1,800 for it and sold it to Smith at a $100 profit. Smith, in turn, sold it to various customers and netted a profit of somewhere between $150 to $200 on the transactions. Uh, Smith said Anthony Blummel told him he went to see Roger in the hospital after the shooting. While he was there, a family member told him he likely wasn't in the will. There would be no will money. After that, Smith testified, Anthony was flat emotionally. I bet, listeners, what did these idiots think? That a bank vice president like Melissa Blummel, would just leave everything 
to two teenage boys with no guardianship or trusteeship in place? I wouldn't be surprised if part of her job wasn't making sure that kind of thing never happens. The sheer senselessness of these murders, it's just astonishing. As I said, Braden Smith's testimony is a bombshell. I suspect that the bottom just dropped out for the defense attorneys. I can imagine them telling their clients, you're toast. The only hope you have is to avoid death row by making a deal with the DA. And our three dominoes fall pretty quickly after that. Ultimately, they all make deals in exchange for no death penalty. Mother and son get life without parole. They'll rot in jail till they die. Yes. Which they richly deserve. The Wichita Eagle report from the sentencing of Keisha and Anthony. District Attorney Mark Bennett. Two more chapters were closed in this case for the family. The family of victims and the families of the accused always suffer in homicides. This is the rare case where they are one and the same. I'm not going to sit here and try to gauge or put a sliding scale on suffering, but they have been through a lot. And this is a rare thing for a family to have to go through, to not only know that you lost family members, but that one of your own was responsible. The die was cast when the plea occurred. Life without the possibility of parole was the only option available for them. There's nothing more to say. These were terrible, horrendous crimes, and I'm pleased that the judges today were able to impose a just sentence for the family to give them some closure and start to begin to put this behind them. Keisha, worthless creature that she is, lies to the very end. Quote, First of all, I want to say that I'm truly sorry for everything that the Blummel family has gone through. I also want to say that I had nothing to do with this. I had no anger toward the Blummels and had the utmost respect for them. They gave Tony and her younger son a wonderful life, and I will always be grateful for that. Unquote. Well, nobody believes that, Keisha. Anthony did not speak at the sentencing. Showing remarkable composure, a relative read a letter from the family. I could sit here and talk about what you did to us with your actions or the horrible things that the family has had to go through. I could sit here and talk about how we've wondered why you did the things that you did and how you could do those things even though Roger and Melissa took you into their home, Tony, and raised you. I could stand here and talk about you, about how you took away Roger and Melissa from all of us way before we were ready to even think about letting them go 
And did you even realize that what you did affects not just you and them, but everybody sitting in this courtroom? The family is moving forward despite of what you did. Their lives were not in vain. You chose to murder them. You chose your path. No one did that for you. Someday, you may come to understand your choices, or you may not ever know. Even though you pled no contest, you are guilty for what you did to them. You are at fault. Take responsibility. Our family and friends stand close together. We are here for each other. We appreciate each other, and we hope to never forget how lucky we are to have one another, and we love each other. Roger and Melissa tried to impart that on Tony, whether he believes it or not. Andrew Ellington got a slightly better deal. I'm not sure really why. Let's just say I think he had a very good lawyer. The sentence on the books for non-capital first-degree murder is life without the possibility of parole after 25 years. So Andrew received that for Roger's murder. However, to get the non-capital deal, he also had to plead guilty to a second-degree murder charge for Melissa's death. That tacked on another about 13 years to be served consecutively. So he has a chance for parole, but not for at least 38 years. The Wichita Eagle report of his sentencing. Andrew Ellington's involvement in a murder for money plot that took the lives of a friend's adoptive parents lasted about 90 minutes. But he will spend nearly 38 years in prison for it. He stood silent except to give a quick no, sir, when asked by District Judge Warren Gilbert whether he had anything to say. Defense attorney Jay Greeno during the hearing said he tried to find answers but had none. Drugs, he said, seem to be the theme that prevails throughout this case. It appears he did not realize how quickly his life could be forever altered, Greeno said, referring to his client. Before the judge announced Ellington's sentence, one of Roger Blummo's sisters-in-law stood up in court and spoke of how her family is moving forward in spite of the killings. But, she said, they are not moving on. Quote, we do not forget nor do we have closure, because you see, there are always empty chairs at our family gatherings. Although you pleaded no contest, you are guilty. You did not turn the car around, and you held a gun to someone's hand, knowing the intent to kill, unquote. The last defendant, Braden Smith, was finally sentenced to 24 years in prison. He fulfilled his part of the bargain. His lawyer spoke for him at sentencing. He's never been in trouble before. He's obviously very young. This is a huge traumatic thing 
that in talking to him, he is extremely sorry for what he got into. He is very sorry for the family. Listeners, I couldn't find anything about his parole status, like when he's up for parole. His Department of Corrections file notes that he is eligible for parole, but it doesn't say when. I'm guessing at least 10 years, but I'm not really sure. The women's prison in Kansas is in Topeka. That's where Keisha is incarcerated. I've um, I've actually been there before for um, oh a, a tour and a, a play put on by some of the inmates. It's not a terrible place like some of the men's prisons I've seen, but it's a prison and not very nice people are there, like Keisha Shaberg. I hope every day she spends in there is just misery. Anthony's gotten a tour of Kansas prisons. He's been in El Dorado. That's the prison for really bad people. It's where Kansas death row is. Lansing, that's the state prison near Leavenworth that helps give Leavenworth its prison city name. Ellsworth, Kansas, and Hutchinson Correctional Facility. When inmates get moved around a lot like that, it's usually because maybe they're getting in trouble a lot. That does look like the case. Um, Or it can be for their own protection. And sometimes there's just overcrowding and they have to move people around. Andrew has been at Lansing Correctional Facility since he was sentenced. Braden spent his time between Hutchinson and El Dorado. My guess is that the Kansas DOC tries to keep those three guys housed in different prisons for security reasons. As part of their plea deals, the four defendants waived all rights to any appeals. Okay, listeners, I don't have any wild speculation for you. Braden Smith's testimony is so awful and senseless, but I believe he told us exactly what happened. No doubt in my mind. The only thing to speculate on is why did it happen? How could four people throw their lives away like that? Not that I want people to be better murderers, but to me, it's really stupid to involve anybody else in a murder plot. I think only stupid murderers have a partner, much less three partners, and people you barely know. The chances somebody will talk are very high. So if you're going to commit a murder, don't hire somebody else to do it. Don't do it with somebody else. And don't tell anybody about it. Well, actually, I guess since I don't want you to be better murderers, do do all of that stuff. 
So anyway, I wondered about whether this murder would have even happened without this weird group dynamic that's going on of the four sort of egging each other on and and even supporting each other and maybe even spreading the guilt around. There's a 2014 article in the Wichita Eagle about how many murders like this, ones that are committed by groups of people involved in the plot. And there are lots of these in Wichita during this time. When the article's written, there are 24 people, including our four, in jail on charges related to 11 murders. Some of the defendants barely know the other people involved in the murder they're charged with. One guy had just met the other two murderers right before the murder, and he didn't know the victim at all. I will say that I think, like um, Andrew's attorney said, I, I think the common thread is drugs. Now, full disclosure, I will admit to a couple of terrible hangovers as a result of trying alcohol at college parties. But I will also say that that was enough for me. I don't like not being in control of myself or not knowing what's going on. I decided then, 50 years ago, not to do drugs or drink alcohol. So I can't speak from experience, but I do have an opinion. I think I get why Keisha and Anthony and Braden and Andrew like to do drugs. They're lazy and self-absorbed people with no direction in life, so they're miserable. And they want to escape that feeling miserable and empty. Doing drugs together makes them feel a little less worthless. Years of doing this, numbing their feelings, had a profound effect on them. Long before they decided to kill Melissa and Roger, I believe they killed their very humanity. I've told you that I'm a religious person, and I do believe in redemption, but I'm afraid these four murderers have dead souls, and I don't think it's reversible. Listeners, these four loser murderers can't even straighten up and fly right in prison. They all have long rap sheets in prison, drugs, assault, lewd acts. Ugh. Thank you to all the correctional personnel out there who put up with scumbags like this to keep us safe. We cannot pay you enough, but we should pay you more. Personally, 
I'm perfectly okay with these lowlifes rotting in jail for the rest of their lives. Mark Bennett is still the district attorney in Sedgwick County for the safety and security of the citizens. I think that's a very good thing. Keisha's little daughter, who was dragged into all this by her own mother, was taken into protective custody by Kansas Social Services right after the arrests. I don't know what happened to her. I really hope she found a good home with some decent relatives and isn't too scarred by all of this. I was very curious about the younger Blummel son, and I'm very nosy, like most true crime aficionados. I'm pretty sure I found him, although he does have a pretty common name. I'll respect his privacy and just say that I think he's living a wonderful, decent life like his true parents, Melissa and Roger, did. The graves of Melissa and Roger Blummel are posted on www.findagrave. They are buried together at Ascension Cemetery in Bel Air, Kansas, near Wichita. If you're in Wichita, there's a big area between East 45th North and 53rd, just off North Woodlawn Boulevard, with a big Catholic school and church and a senior living area. That's where Ascension Cemetery is. I believe that Melissa and Roger Blummel are resting in peace together. While they were alive, they made the world a better place. And they raised one good son who will do the same. Okay, listeners, there are lots of links in the show notes. I'd love for you to subscribe to Prison City Murders and tell your friends about the podcast. It would be wonderful if you could leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can comment on the cases on the podcast website, Blue Bear, or I'm sorry, Prison City Murders dot B-L-U- B-R-R-Y, that's blueberry without the E's in it, dot net. And you can also email me at prisoncitymurders at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars.